Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is a woman whose lifeblood has been fighting for justice and equality for working people in Australia, taking on governments, industries, corporates. I'm talking about Sally McManus, the first woman to serve as Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the peak body for our trade union movement. Sally, many of the listeners to the podcast would not be union members and many aren't Australian. So can you explain to them how you see the purpose of trade unionism? Well, I sort of take it right back to the beginning, like the simple thing about unions. And it's just simply the idea of people sticking together. That's all it is. It's about working people realising that they don't have power by themselves, but they have power together. And so a union is simply that expression. It's about people sticking together and pursuing a common goal. So, you know, you can get fancy about it, but when you strip it all back, that's what it is. That's a very good description. Now, a friend of yours described you as, and I quote, a modern day nun married to the trade union movement. And she went on to say that she'd not met anyone more single minded in the pursuit of a cause. Now, what made you so unbelievably passionate about being a trade unionist? Well, first, I might say I was a little bit pissed off when she said that because <laughs> it was in the media. And I said, What do you mean a nun? What are you calling me a nun? And especially because I'm an atheist and like, what does that mean? Anyway, I've sort of grown to own it. And it's a bit true, really, because. I do feel this sense of that I'm serving, that I'm serving in what I'm doing. And I have in my mind that, well, if you can achieve good things in your life and you can dedicate yourself to what you're doing and you only get one go at it and you just focus on that, well, then you're most likely to have had a life that's worth living and because you've contributed to the betterment of humankind. So I suppose there's part of, you know, a nun-esque <laughs> thinking with that. And for me, it's a lot of the people I've met along the way. You know, when I was young, the teachers at my school had a really huge strike and I grew up in the working class parts of Sydney and I'd really hardly ever been into the CBD before and they had this huge strike that the students participated in too. So I so remember being on a train and seeing our teachers, all these other students, all on trains from all around our city and then arriving together and then thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
all being there. And we sort of gathered in this big park in the middle of the city and there was 50,000 people there. And I remember that day, it wasn't the idea, it was the feeling, the feeling that got me, that feeling of looking around and knowing that the people around you had the same common cause and that power, that feeling of power and solidarity. And so I think probably for me, that's what sparked my interest And I want to talk to you about those early influences because one of the things that happened in your primary school days is you decided you wanted to play soccer. People around the world outside Australia would probably say football at that point, but we've got our own football, so we say soccer. You decided you wanted to play soccer with the boys because you were good at it. Now, what did this cause? Well, this is way back in the day, so this would have been in the early 80s, and I was really good at soccer, <laughs> and I had two younger brothers, so I was sort of used to roughing it with my younger brothers, and I was bigger than them, so I was used to being stronger than them too until they hit puberty, and that wasn't it's something I was happy about. But anyway, I, was, I used to play soccer at lunchtime with the boys, because it was only the boys doing so. I used to play soccer after school, and the coach would just let me join in, and I was the best in the team. And I really, really wanted to play because it'd go to the weekend and there'd be the match on and I couldn't play because there was these ridiculous rules saying that, you know, girls couldn't play in the boys' teams. They ended up taking it to through the hierarchy of the soccer club and they had a meeting and they decided, no, girls can't play in the team. And for me as a 10-year-old, it just seemed so ridiculous but so deeply unfair. Like this is something that I love, but not only did I love, I was better than all the others. Like, why couldn't I play? Yeah, use that skill. And I suppose in my simple, you know, child mind back then, I thought, well, it's just because I'm not a boy. Well, that's it. So I borrowed my brother's school uniform and I went to school the next day and I lined up in the boys' line and I said, I'm no longer Sally, I'm Shane. And that's it. And I've, I thought that that would be the successful way of getting me into the soccer team. Now, did that work? No, it was a disaster. <laughs> Total disaster. The school didn't react well. My parents certainly did not react well. They, I think, thought it was probably more than it was. It was just simply me wanting to play soccer. I'm sure schools would deal with this much better these days, but they did not deal with it well. So I remember the next day my mother sent me to school with uh, clips and bows in my hair, which I duly ripped off the minute I got around the corner. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't make it into the soccer team. That stuff about dress, you know, it still happens. Uh, You know, gender reveal parties, it's going to be pink for girls, blue for boys. You know, girls are supposed to be interested in fashion and makeup and boys are going to go on and wear sort of uh, suits and ties or tradies uniforms. Women are supposed to be nurturing and empathetic. Men are supposed to be strong and decisive. Even after all of the progress we've made, these stereotypes still surround us. You know, thinking back to your early days and through to now, how have you seen those stereotypes and reacted to them in your own life? Well, I find it really interesting to read that at some times in history, actually pink was a colour for boys, which of course just tells us, you know, how much that's just totally determined by society at that time. And for me, I suppose I I certainly didn't fit into any of those boxes. I was never a girly girl, but I guess I lived most of my life in my head. And because I was good at sport, I could get away with that. Probably a boy doing the same thing would have got a lot of bullying at school for sure, but that didn't happen for me. And I suppose what I've learnt, and about 18, 
I just stopped wearing dresses entirely and I've never worn them since. I've never been just interested in anything like fashion, just not interested. Not to any judgment on people that are, it just was me. I think what I've learnt over the years is the most important thing is to not care about what other people think. And it's a simple thing to say, but once you get to that point where you're happy with yourself and you love yourself and you don't care about what other people think, it's very liberating. And I think probably, you know, if people either accept you or they don't accept you. And I guess I've tried to live my life that way, not very well when I was younger and certainly for, for many, many years. And I think it takes a long time for most people to get to a point, most women to get to a point where they just say, well, you know, this is me. I'm happy with it. If other people aren't, that's their problem. And it wasn't one sort of light bulb moment. It was a process because I think so many women in their teenage years and into their 20s and maybe even longer struggle with that body image stuff of, you know, I'm not tall enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not glamorous enough, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Can you just talk us a little bit through how you worked your way to this self-acceptance? Because a lot of women listening would probably be saying to themselves, gee, I'm whatever age and I'm not there yet. I think I was lucky in some ways in that I was always good at sport and always did things that were physical. And when I was probably 19, I took up martial arts and I still do martial arts. So I think that helps you with a confidence in your body and that in the end does affect your mind, even if you don't think it does. For me, it was absolutely just a process. I think it's worse for young women because of social media. Like there's absolutely that idea that you're being looked at and judged all the time, even when people aren't in front of you because of Instagram, because of social media, and that that's probably made the problem worse in lots of ways. So I'm not trying to hold myself up as a model for this, and unfortunately I can't sort of point to, okay, this was a particular point, but I did get there and it wasn't like an immediate thing and it wasn't a quick thing. But I have to confidently say these days, I don't even, does not even cross my mind about what other people might think of me, even though I'm in the public eye and even though people have a lot to say about that on social media. That's fantastic. Now, you went from school to university. You were the first in your family to do so. And you started running anti-sexism campaigns from your student bedroom, employing some quite imaginative tactics. Can you tell us about filling balloons with paint and what happened next? Well, JG, I think I better be a little bit careful about what I say. (laughs) Okay, are we past any statute of limitations? Limitations. (laughs) So maybe I won't talk about me personally, but you <laughs> know what some people generally. did. What some people did. So this was in the early nineties, and in Australia in the early nineties, there was a rash of sexist advertising. So to give you some picture, they advertised cars with pictures of women in lingerie with a chain like a dog. This was the one particular one I remember. So just outrageously sexist things that actually in Australia, we don't see that type of extreme advertising that way. The the companies would suffer a fair bit of brand damage if they did it. So I suppose in the way we were the early people in advertising, 
doing the brand damage. So there were people like myself that it's not like we had all these other tools and other options to pursue. And so people decided, women mainly, but some blokes too, some men too, decided that uh, what they do is at night time, especially there was this big poster advertising billboard like the one I described, went out at night and covered it with paint. And in fact, I do hear that some very bad people wrote particular things on there, you know, pointing out how sexist it was. And this caused a bit of a furor at the time and really a debate in the community, like, is this acceptable, isn't? A debate about the tactics, like, oh, is this acceptable to be defacing things or isn't? But I guess that was the point, wasn't it? Because it caused a discussion in the community about sexism in advertising. And I think that as a result, like, obviously not just, you know, that was one part of what a lot of people were saying at the time, we no longer see that type of advertising. And so even back then, you know, this issue of self-acceptance about how you look and women generally, women and men being self-accepting about how they look, you obviously saw a political dimension to it, taking this advertising action. Absolutely. Just because, and I wouldn't say I was self-accepting back then in my in my early 20s or as a teenager, but the images of women and how demeaning it was, you knew that that reflected the general view that some people had in society of women. And we knew that showing women in that way dragged us all down. That wasn't a question in our minds. I suppose it wasn't until I went to university that I became a conscious feminist because I, I got exposed to those ideas ideas. And, you know, as, as it is, you know, you're around a whole lot of other younger people that are also exposed to those ideas. And you think, well, I'm just not going to think about them. I want to do something. Uh, and that, that was our expression of, of doing something. And would you say that you also became an environmental activist when you were at university? Amongst the things you did when you were president of your university student union included, you know, eliminating plastic crockery and cutlery, making sure that the campus was composting, banning smoking from the student bar, which might sound a humble reform as we talk about it now, but back then would have been incredibly controversial. Was there a sense that we weren't doing the right things by the planet in you even then? Well, in the case of banning smoking, we were the second pub in the whole country of Australia to do so. And it was very controversial because it was a student pub. So you can imagine that. And I was absolutely an environmentalist and, and I still am. And back then it was, I think it was the first sort of global meeting at Rio and we'd had explained to us already, like back then we called it the greenhouse effect and what was happening and that sort of idea. I guess I grew up just after all the fears around the Cold War and to do with, you know, nuclear war. And when I was a teenager, nuclear war loomed big and then the whole issue of what was happening to the planet was a really big issue. So it was that thing about, well, you find yourself in a position, president of the student union, I've got actually got the power to do some things and didn't want to waste time and so wanted to go about doing things. So they're small in a way, but it's funny because they sort of seem now when you think about it, we were before our times, but it was that thing about, I remember people saying to us, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't ban all the plastic cutlery. You know, the students will steal it. The poor students will take it home. And I just said, well, good. (laughs) And that, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. So, well, we've just done it. So definitely... I was an environmentalist back there. And then one of the things I learned out of all of that is that 
sometimes people aren't going to like you when you make hard decisions and you know you're going through life and people you know you want other people to like you and learning that making hard decisions if you believe it's right is inevitably going to mean that some people don't like you and the only way to go about living your life and having everyone like you is not doing anything and I had no intention of not doing anything so that was a really good early lesson for me and certainly actually in terms of today. If you'd played a word association test back then and said to people, what do you think if I say the word trade unionist, many people would have had in their mind's eye a man probably in a singlet or a sort of outfit to do construction or some sort of manual labour. How gendered was the union movement back then? How far away from reality was that picture in people's minds? There was no leaders at the ACTU that were women. It was two men and the assistant secretary. So there's four elected people at our peak body, the ACTU, and all of them were men back then. Also, two years after I started, we had the first female leader, Jenny George. And that was a big deal. It was a really big deal when she got elected. And I remember we were all celebrating and singing I Am Woman. It was <laughs> it was fantastic. But then also the trade union membership was majority men. It was about 60-40 majority men because that was the structure of our economy then. It's changed so much. Three years ago, for the first time, women overtook men as the majority in the trade union movement. So it's changed in terms of the makeup of who a union member is. So your average union member in Australia these days is a nurse in a public hospital and she's about 44 years old. So that's your average trade union member. Having said all of that doesn't mean that the Murdoch press doesn't try and still pretend it's it's like a bloke. The whole culture was a masculine culture and the whole idea of industrial action or taking action was like a very sort of, you know, butch, tough thing to do. And so there was that definitely that working class male expression of trade unionism that um, still dominated. And day to day, how did it play out for you? There you are, this idealistic new trainee, job of a lifetime Did you feel it in the environment? Yeah, so for most of the time that I was at my union, I was the youngest person. Even when I became the secretary, I was the youngest person. (laughs) And certainly when I started, I was 21, so I was a kid. And members as well as my colleagues sort of did treat me that way. And the fact I was also a woman, there was an extra layer of paternalism, really, I think, to do with that. And... It did certainly play out in groups where the majority of uh, the the workers were were men, absolutely. I can tell you a few stories about that. But other young women, in order to be accepted, would do different things. So I saw some women try and be more like the blokes and so model themselves on what they saw as a trade unionist was or was held up to be what we should all admire. And then I saw other women sort of become more hypersexualized, so more feminine and sort of play out that part of it. And these were two sort of opposing ways of trying to get acceptance within that environment. And in the end, like neither work because it's not you, like you're being something that's not you. You're being what you think other people want you to be or expect you to be. And it never works. And I think that being a union organiser, which I was, is is really 
knocks it out of you, and I think probably goes back to your earlier question, is working people, when you're with them and they're under stress or you're with them full stop and you're, you're, you're talking through issues, is they will sniff out bullshit. They will sniff out if you're not being genuine, if you're not being yourself. So you can try it on, but you'll get caught out. Can you give us one story from yeah. those days? So when I was 23 or 24, I was organising in a in the IT industry and it's a big IT company, I won't name it, and I'd organised this group of workers and they were all men and they were technicians. And, uh, you know, the next youngest person was probably 10 years older than me too. And it took a while to be accepted by them, except probably not that long. We were in a big fight with this company. Everyone joined the union. We ended up going on strike. We were in a big battle. Anyway, during that strike, the management started to put posters up around the workplace with pictures of me, basically saying that, who is this young woman? She's probably a lesbian too, like literally did that to try and undermine me in the face of those guys. I did not know about this because all the organising happened outside of the workforce. And I heard little bits and pieces being said and it, it, it sort of started to become like I felt as though something was being hidden from me and certainly it was. And so I fronted up one of the delegates and you get to close relationships with the workplace representatives because you go through these things together. I said, what's all of this about? And for ages, he just fobbed me off. And eventually he did tell me and told me what had happened. And I was sort of horrified about that. I was mainly horrified by you know, the fact that something was happening to undermine where we were going and they were using me to undermine the work that those workers had, you know, what they'd built, their union that they'd built. And uh, this guy said to me, look, Sally, just don't worry about it. Like the boys couldn't care if you had three heads and they were green, like as long as you're on our side. And so that's stuck in my head, like all these years, like in the end, People will sort of accept people's differences when they just know that you're 100% with them and that you're good at your job. Stuff like that just wasn't effective. And talking about who's in the trade union movement now, we know in our economy, economies around the world, there are still considerable gender pay gaps. You led a very big fight for equal pay for low-paid social and community workers, so you know women who work perhaps in a women's refuge or a drug and alcohol service, and the statistics showed that even though they were university-educated professionals, they were being profoundly underpaid. Can you tell us about that landmark case? Because it did attract a lot of attention. I kind of remember it because <laughs> I was Prime Minister at the time and uh, before that the Workplace Relations Minister who'd worked on the legislation. So that is actually probably how we met, hey? So I think that's exactly how we met. So we're in a situation, as you said, where this industry is feminised, so 85% women in the industry, and they were looking after and are looking after society's most vulnerable. And so two things were happening. From a, a legal perspective, a historical legal perspective, a pay gender equity perspective, that work used to be done by volunteers or women would look after, you know, a disabled person who's in their family and they did it for free. And so all of a sudden when there were these jobs to do that, I think that there was a historical idea that this work is really volunteer work or work that's women's work and so therefore is not going to be well valued. So that's sort of that side of it and that's part of the reason why pay was so bad the other part of it was is the workers themselves, even though they were 
unionising is that they did not like fighting for their own pay because they saw that, well, I'm better off than this homeless person that I'm, that I'm supporting or that it's somehow it's, it's greedy to be asking for that when so many others have so little or that their service would close down and that if they got a pay rise, that's money being taken off people with drug addictions who really need the money. So we had to overcome both the, the legal historical problem and a problem really with our members, an internalised idea themselves that they should be martyrs in a way. And so this was a campaign that was about a legal case, but it was also about consciousness raising with the membership about them being worth it, about the value of their job and how important it is. And about, therefore, it's about respecting to those people they're supporting, people with disabilities, people that are fleeing domestic violence situations. You know, if you respect them, well, then you should be able to pay the workers who support them properly as well. So that was a bit of a journey. And then we had this opportunity given to us by your government that had changed the law to allow cases to be taken to rectify this gender equity problem. And you were the Prime Minister, and so you weren't the enemy. And so we started our campaign, which was about sending kisses to Julia Gillard. So we had, I don't do you remember that? I do remember. So, well, that's good. <laughs> Effective campaign, you see. So we uh, and, and, and it wasn't common uh, in my experience as Prime I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So people would do little videos, they would write postcards, especially back then to send a kiss to Julia Gillard, you know, no more lip service to equal pay. <laughs> yeah, that was the pun. So in this campaign, it went for six years. And so we would have an industry-wide strike probably twice a year, big mobilizations. But I have to say, when we started, like they were small. And at some points in that campaign in the beginning, you know, when 50 people turned up, you think, well, is this even going to work? But we stuck with it. We stuck with it and we kept building it and we building it. We took a legal case as well and we built community support for fair pay for these workers. And in the end, we won when we won because of our campaign, but we also won because we had a good government with a feminist leader who also supported uh, the fact that there had to be justice for these workers. And because of that, they get their last pay increase this year. So most of those workers are now 40% better off than they would have been. It's gone from being an industry where people didn't stay because they couldn't afford to stay. People now have careers there. I've got lots of mates that are in that industry. And when we go out to dinner, it's like, no, we're buying the drinks, Sally, because like, this is like, we can now afford to, like it's, transform their lives and it's transformed that industry. So it's something I'm just so proud to have been a part of. You're obviously a fantastic campaigner and I know that for sure. (laughs) The position of Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions becomes available unexpectedly. It wasn't on a regular rotation. The person who held the position resigned and that hadn't been foreseen. I think you were actually away on holidays. Can you talk us through 
how you thought about, should I go for that job? Well, probably letting people into a bit of a secret, but probably a bit of an open secret. I'd already decided I would like that job. And so a couple of years before then, you know, I'd been the leader of my union for for 10 years and was like early 40s. I had this fantastic young leadership coming behind me at the ASU. And I thought, well, if I don't move on now, that generation is not going to move into leadership. And this is the right thing to do, but also I feel like I've got more to give. And so I made a, it was a risk and a decision to take a job at the ACTU as a campaign director, which for me meant leaving my union, leaving the leadership position I was in. I loved my union. I still love my union. And to leave my mates in Sydney and move to another city and to take up that position as a campaign director. Then I felt like everything was a job interview. So where every time, you know, you're running a campaign and you're presenting it to the executive, which is all of the leaders of all the unions who in the end decide, you know, who's going to be the next leadership, you're on show the whole time. I sort of was very zen about it though. I thought, well, I'm giving this a go and if the movement wants me, well, then good. And if they don't, well, that that's fine as well. And so you're right. I was in the right place at the right time, but it wasn't by accident. So when the person before me, Dave Oliver, suddenly decided to leave, I think already the leaders of the union movement, the ones who didn't know me, especially because they weren't from my state, had sort of seen me in action. So there you know, it was a little bit of a fight about it because there was a couple of, uh, well, really just one person who was not so keen on me, really doesn't fit his idea of what a woman should be, I think, and probably had an idea too that being the secretary of the ACTU is really a man's job. But that was really just one person. And in the end, I think about who stood up to him, it was the other boys. So... It was two years of hard work beforehand and then being there at the right time and being ready for it. And did you have any doubts? Was there part of you thinking, can I do this? I mean, it's very common Absolutely. for yeah, women not to put themselves forward or to put themselves forward with a sense of reluctance because they're self-doubting. I really wanted the position, so th- that was there, but that did not mean I did not have in my head oh my God, Secretary of the ACTU, can I do this? By the time I got there, I was very focused on what I wanted to do when I got there. So it wasn't like I got the position, I was standing there like a rabbit in headlights. So I was just ready to go at that particular point. The leadership of the ACTU, there are two principal positions, the President and the Secretary. And over the years, there have been a number of women who have served as President. You referred to Jenny George as the first, but you're the first female Secretary. What do you think is the difference? Why does it matter that you're the first female Secretary when we've had female Presidents? Well, I think that, you know, wrongly, but for quite a long time, the part of the trade union movement had a view, well, it's good to have a woman as a president who's going to be the face of the trade union movement in the media and all of that because it gives us a much softer image. (laughs) You know, they can do all of that and they can do the campaign stuff, but like, oh, the serious work is the secretary. And you see this in a whole lot of political parties too, and we're not a political party, but, you know, you've got these very serious, you know, jobs for, you know, the person who's the behind the scenes head of the political party. It's always a bloke, like, well, in Australia anyway, it is. 
because you're the you're the head of the organisation, you're the operational head, the secretary of, of the ACTU is, and so that was a barrier because of sexism over the time. And I remember people sort of saying to me, "Oh well, if you know Jed Carney, who was the president at the time, if she leaves, well, you could become the next president." I said, "I said, oh yeah, that'd be nice." But I had in my head, "No, I'm going to be the next secretary." So I think that. We've well and truly sort of overcome that idea. And I have to say, by the time I became secretary, those ideas had eroded away. They were quite old-fashioned. And you look at my predecessors, like the women who've been in those leadership positions before as president. So you've got Jenny George, you've got Sharon Burrow, who is now the head of the trade union movement in the world. Like, she is the top trade union leader in the world. Like, just enormous people, like in terms of their capacity and who they are. And they're Jed Carney, who's now in our parliament in Australia too. So pretty extraordinary people themselves. And they cleared the way. Whilst there was issues about having a woman's secretary, really, they were relics, people that were relics that had those views. So we'd had in Australia all-male leadership teams at the ACTU. We'd had a man and a woman, with the woman being the president. Now we have you as secretary and another woman, Michelle O'Neill, as president. What difference does it make to have two women? Michelle is like a really experienced, capable, extremely talented union leader. She uh, headed up the union that's for textile workers. And so in Australia, those workers, uh, migrant workers, mainly don't have English as a language they speak at home, have been horribly exploited. And there's been a lot of job losses in that area because of you know changes in terms of globalisation. So she had been through so many battles. And now to have her alongside me, is wonderful. And I see us as a team. It's not like, well, okay, I'm the secretary and you're the president and you'll just do this and I'll just do that. We don't really work like that. We both of us sort of come from the same school of thought that's always about what's best for the movement, not what's best for ourselves. And so because you've got those common values, that works. When things happen, and of course there is still sexism or people do stupid things, you've got someone that you can confide in and laugh about it. So a way of dealing with it is basically made the job less lonely. So I think if it was just me and I had a male offsider as president, it would be more lonely. You can't sort of like share that with other colleagues because as a sort of leader, obviously you're the confidant for people too. So if someone's behaved inappropriately or done something that's you know just silly you've really got to sort of keep it to yourself having someone else there allows us to sort of process these things and have a laugh along the way <laughs> and you are obviously very much in the media as our trade union movement leader Michelle is as well but there was a time when you caused a fair old reaction where in a media interview you talked about the fact that you had no problem with workers breaking the law if the laws were unjust and you talked about the need to campaign for a progressive agenda to cause, and I quote, massive drama. As a result, you got called a lunatic with a job-destroying agenda, and this is one I particularly like. A newspaper headline said we would be living in McManistan, (laughs) so it's kind of almost a compliment that the whole country would be renamed after you. How did you react to these comments? Well, that interview you talk about, I was three hours into the job, like three hours. I was a brand new ACTU secretary. Already it's a big day. 
of course, there's like the anxiety levels of that. I'm pretty calm with things, and but you know, it's a big day, and you get sent off to do you know an interview on our national carrier. It's a big one. You know, every new secretary does this interview. And I was nervous about it. That honest truth was I was nervous about it. I, I just felt as though all the members would be watching and I had to do well for them because, you know, I'm representing their movement. I want them to be proud of our movement. And so like a lot of people have said to me, said, oh, you deliberately did that to sort of create that stir that's now led to this and, oh, what brilliant thinking or, or you know, or maybe you should have done it differently. None of that was true. Like I just answered the answers truthfully. I just dealt with them as they came. And I walked out of that interview, not even thinking that I caused a stir, which meant I had no preparation whatsoever for what then happened. So our sort of national paper that's run by Rupert Murdoch then ran stories about me and some of them were terrible and just lies that went on for days and days and days, like front page just sort of, you know, denouncing the Prime Minister, you know, the next day I should resign, all the major employers saying I should resign, everyone saying I should resign. And it was a big storm. And so the thing is, is that I discussed this with the other union leaders and said, look, if you think what I've said is not right, you should tell me and we'll we'll deal with that. Like, oh, if everyone doesn't agree with this, well, we'll work out how to deal with it. And people said, no, we do agree with it. Like taking industrial action or strike action is a human right. And that's what you were talking about. And we all believe that. And so I believed it too. And so I had just no intention of backing down. I felt as though that the ruling class in our country were, okay, here's a new leader. We'd better put her back in a box really quickly. And if I was seen then to back down too in front of all of our members on something we believed in, that would not be good for our movement. And I just had no intention of doing so. And then I basically wore out that storm. And then a couple of weeks later, did a press club, which is a big sort of set speech, which gets televised, where I just reinforced like why that's the right thing. Like sometimes you do have to break laws if they're unjust. Like you think about apartheid in South Africa, you can go through the list of all of these things. And it's not something anyone does lightly, but it's part of democracy. It's part of um, moving things forward. That was a big experience for me and it happened on day one. And I think the effect of it, looking back now, you know, nearly three years, is that I lost all my fear of the media. I lost it because it was so full on what happened. I don't think they could do any worse. They probably could, Julia, like you could tell me that absolutely. But what I learned was is that there's the media that's led by sort of, you know, one particular company and that union members and working people had a different view. So all of a sudden I was out of my bubble and I'm walking down the street and people are stopping me in the street saying, good on you, good on you. And then I go to union events and over and over, I got a totally different reaction to what the media was, one section of the media was saying. So I learned that it actually doesn't matter when they attack you for what you believe in. And that so long as you're clear about that and about what you believe in, like, don't apologize. I'm not going to wake up every single day and apologize for being the leader of a trade union movement I'm proud of. 
the time that you've uh, had in between from being appointed to now, there's been some highs and some lows. I suspect a low was in May last year when we had a federal election in Australia and the expectation was that a Labor government would be elected. The polls were showing that, the commentators were saying that. But when the results came in, Labor wasn't elected. The trade union movement had mobilised during that election campaign to put a voice for change around industrial rules and better treatment of working people. Where were you on election night? And looking back on it now, what do you think went wrong? I was in the Bob Hawke room, which is a room at the ACTU head offices, and we sort of set that up and the staff that had been really involved in the campaign came along and some other union leaders came along. That day I'd um, had a very long day where I'd flown into a, a marginal seat. I'd spent you know all day there travelling and then I'd flown back to Melbourne. So it was already like I should have been exhausted, but at that point it was just adrenaline. That election campaign just felt weird the whole time. And when I say weird, it sort of felt like you had been hunted. And it didn't feel like other election campaigns that, that I'd been involved in where you felt as though you had momentum or you felt as though things were going the way that you wanted. And so whilst I sort of had this sort of my body was telling me one thing, my head was telling me something else because the published polls consistently would say that Labor was going to win the election. I knew from on the ground, because we were running a big on the ground campaign, that Labor was not doing well in central Queensland. We knew that. We knew how bad it was. And so you sort of started recalibrating and say, okay, well, yep, it's clear from despite what what the polls are saying that we know on the ground that Labor is not going to win a whole lot of those particular seats. But look, they'll probably pick up here and they'll probably pick up there and surely the polls can't be wrong. So it was sort of this sort of tension the whole time between your heart and your head, like the whole way through that election. That night, I was still like expecting Labor to win because it just seemed impossible for them not to because they only had to pick up like a couple of seats and so many were on edge. And then the results started to come in and... At some point, and it wasn't long, it was like half an hour into it really, maybe three quarters of an hour into it, you could see that certain areas that you knew very well were not going Labor's way. And then at the end, you've got all these people watching it and then some people who just can't give up. And so they'll start going, no, but somehow we can calculate it. So somehow Labor can win. And it's just the point where you're wanting to, you just have to like take the leadership role and be the person to say, that's not what's going to happen. They go, but we'll just wait for Western Australia. I said, no point waiting for Western Australia. And so it was a shock. It was a big shock. And for me, I thought, well, you're the leader sitting in this seat, the ACTU secretary seat at this time. You know the movement's going to feel traumatised because of this, because we'd spent several years campaigning very strongly because we really strongly believe there needs to be improved workplace laws. And that's what we had a whole focus on. And to be honest, I was preparing and thinking about, okay, after Labor wins, then we've got to do this, this and this. 
everything's thrown out. Everything's thrown out. And you've got to be the person who's got to lift people up, but at the same time, you've got to process what's happened. So that was tough. Thing is about being a union leader or a union activist or a union delegate is that the life doesn't stop the next day. Like the very next day, employers are wanting to sack people or they're wanting to negotiate something like life goes on. And I saw some people in political parties maybe wallow in it for a while. And it's because they sort of could afford to, like for us, you know, immediately the government's attacking us. So we've got no choice other than to pick ourselves up and sort of face the enemy. You've talked about some of the trade union leaders who have gone before. You referred to Bob Hawke, who, of course, was a trade union leader and went on to be a great Australian Prime Minister. We've just talked about the election defeat. Does politics call to you at all, being in a parliament, being in the national parliament? I think briefly at some points in my life I've thought maybe, but these are brief moments and now I've had time to reflect on it and my honest answer is no. And my honest answer is because what I go back to what I said in the beginning, just this sense, okay, you only live once, how can I contribute the most? I think my skills and I think my passion is actually in movement building and that good governments and good changes can only come about if there is that movement building. And I feel like now more than ever that's needed at a time when inequality is getting worse. I feel as though we're, we're like entering the reign of the billionaires. And there, if there aren't people who've had the privilege of their whole life being trained by working people in how to do this, dedicating themselves to that, well, how are we ever going to have a better world? So... I think that's my calling and I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. that. That is your calling. I can tell that from every dealing I've ever had with you as well as from our discussions today. One thing that's really struck me during the course of today's discussion, there's been a couple of times when you said about soccer, I was good at it, about philosophy, I was good at it, about the job that you hold now, I wanted it. Often women don't say those things. They don't say... I was good at it. They don't say I wanted it. Women say, you know, I was lucky, you know, this happened to happen, that's how I got here. What gives you that sense of confidence? I mean, it's just refreshing to hear a woman who's prepared to own it. I just think I'm being honest. Like, I was good at soccer. I was good at philosophy. I did want that job. I guess I'm not trying to apologise for myself or what I've loved or what I've wanted. I'm just you know, trying to tell you directly what the truth about all of that is. So there's no thought about how do I put this in a way that other people might respond to it or I've got to be self-deprecating at this point or I should be more humble, I shouldn't be arrogant. I don't think I'm arrogant either, but union members have taught me just to be myself and just to be upfront about things. And that's something actually I like about myself, so I'm not, not going to change. And that's something we all like about you. <laughs> now, I'm going to move to a standard set of questions we do at the end of every podcast. Uh, first, we put a fact. Now, we had hoped that these were going to be a series of fun facts, but unfortunately, they've all turned out to be pretty disturbing. And here's a disturbing fact. The International Labour Organisation puts out findings on the global gender gaps in employment. And it says that workforce participation for women is at 49%. Whereas for men, it's at 75%. 
Women who want to work have a harder time finding a job than a man. They tend to be overrepresented in precarious jobs and they do the lion's share of unpaid work, whether that's caring for others or housework. How does that make you feel? Well, not very happy, pretty pissed off actually, (laughs) but not surprised because I know those stats and I think that the answers to that aren't straightforward and what I've learned is there's limits to what you can achieve through workforce changes or rights for workers, rights for, for women. They're very important, but they're not everything because if you don't also change the power dynamic or the expectations of women in relationships, you're still going to have the same problem. So why do we have a situation, we talk about this quite often, about women's leadership in trade unions? Well, even though the rules at work or within unions would look as though that they're encouraging women, well, where there's an expectation where you're still the primary caregiver and you've still got to do most of the housework, well, how the hell can you do that job? Like, you can't. And so there has to be, you know, change happen, which is much bigger change. And it's, you know, it's about patriarchy. And I sort of obviously look at you know countries that are more progressive than us and some of the Nordic countries, even New Zealand, who, who are, I think, more progressive than Australia, where they have things like pay parental leave. Well, men take it as well. And the expectation is, is that men will take it. Well, that's going to change an individual, isn't it? If you're going to spend 12 months with, with your child, it's going to change the way that you think about the value of that work or about how hard it might be. And I think that that, when we start changing that dynamic as well, that's when we'll start seeing bigger changes. But how to do that, I don't think there's a perfect path. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Yeah, I think it was probably that IT boss I told you about. That was, um, yeah, that's at the top of the list. And the other thing I'd say is that social media has changed everything. So, you know, anyone can say whatever they want about you. And so that does change, you know, their level of abuse that women leaders face. And if you had absolute power just for a day, what's the thing that you would change for women? Has to be an ending gendered violence, has to be that. Far too many women are murdered, are murdered in their intimate relationships. It would have to be that. Virginia says, if we help an educated man's daughter to go to Cambridge, are we not forcing her to think not about education, but about war? Not how she can learn, but how she can fight in order that she might win the same advantage as her brothers. Sally says... Well, we want all of our daughters to go have the opportunity to go to university, not just the daughters of educated men. And secondly, we should always remember that it's not just one person that changes the world. It takes an army and it takes many, many people. Thank you, Sally. I very much enjoyed it. I loved it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.